Empowering Independence podcast is a conversation about the RIA space, hosted by Austin Philbin, with friends and guests that include individuals spanning the entire spectrum of wealth management. A high-energy, insightful creation, this show aims to demystify many of the myths of financial services and provide insights, fresh ideas, and a true look into what it takes to be a successful wealth management entrepreneur. Austin will ask the questions that need to be answered by any firm looking to drive scale, efficiency, and enterprise value. Hello, and welcome to the Powering Independence podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, President, Founder, and CEO of Dynasty Financial Partners, Cheryl Penny. Hello, Cheryl. Hey, Austin. How are you? Good. How about yourself? Fantastic. I think I'd like to start with a, a pretty basic question. Um, since the theme of today's uh, episode is around the story of Dynasty, uh, maybe we can start back with uh, the beginning of our relationship because we worked together for uh, a fairly decent amount of years. Uh, do you remember the first time that we worked together? Well, I would go back even further than when the first time we worked together. We obviously, uh, as many people in the company, but maybe not all the listeners know, we went to college together. Correct. Uh, we went to Bates College, and in 19, I was thinking about this, 1990. Eight, I believe we were co-captains of the Bates baseball team. Yep, uh, you're a year behind me, uh, but uh, hit uh, leadoff and I hit uh, cleanup. You were a much better and still are much better athlete. Uh, you played uh, center field, uh, in left field, right field, all around the outfield, and uh, they used to hide me at first base and sometimes hide me as uh, as DH. Uh, but we had a lot of fun and built a great relationship, obviously in in college. So that's where it all started, and then. Essentially, we've worked together uh, most of our career. We worked together at Smith Barney. You were really the first uh, chief of staff, kind of started it all. I've had about six since then, and most all of them work at, uh, at the company. But it's just been an incredible uh, personal and professional journey together. So it's a lot of fun uh, that you'd have me sit down and have this conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have you. I think that Part of the reason maybe that our relationship has been able to endure all these years is because uh, the Bates baseball team was not very good. So we had to <laughs> overcome a lot of adversity yes. as team good captain. <laughs> good training. Good training for entrepreneurship. Actually, interestingly enough, if I remember correctly, 23 years ago, we had our first uh, job together in the sports information department at Bates College, and we did the statistical analysis for the Bates College teams, uh, whether it's calculating someone's free throw percentage, which I'm sure that I uh, <laughs> gave someone some gimmies, uh, all the way to looking at uh, different statistics on the uh, the football team. So that's well, that how was, we started. Yeah, and that's kind of entrepreneurship 101, right? Because we, I remember we, we looked at each other one evening and said, look, we're going to go to every single basketball game. We're going to go to every single football game. Uh, so why not go and have the best seats in the front row? All we have to do is keep some of the stats and write a press release <laughs> after the game, uh, and we get paid to go to the game. So it was uh, was was incredible, and we had a lot of fun doing that together. Yeah, it was definitely a good foundation for uh, what journey or the journey that we're on currently around Dynasty Financial Partners. So very basic, easy, easy question for you, because I know that a lot of people ask you this, but 
What was it like for you personally to, to start Dynasty? Well, I, it's an easy question, and it wasn't easy to do. So I had uh, a great run at Smith Barney uh, with various executive jobs there and left in April of 2008. Uh, fortunate that I sold most of my Citigroup stock in the low 30s on the way to about 80 cents uh, uh, over the course of the next six to six to eight months. Uh, and had really been thinking about you know how I sit on the other side of the table and become an entrepreneur. Uh, and I had pitched to senior leadership at the time to build an REA division because we had watched the asset flows very closely that they were continuing to go more to the independent side. And it was a combination of advisors going independent uh, as well as clients going independent uh, and looking for an independent advisor. Uh, probably an idea 15 years ago that was too early. Uh, so the firm didn't want to get behind it, so that's okay. It presented an opportunity uh, for me and some of the other co-founders to go uh, and, and move on, on on that opportunity set. The challenge was, of course, I was then trying to raise capital headed into the financial crisis. So my wife, uh, and you've heard me say this a number of times, but my wife Marianne kept track of how long we went without a paycheck, you know, two years, seven months, and four days. Literally, she, she tracked it uh, that close. Uh, before we launched uh, the business officially, December 4th, uh, 2010. And uh, it was a journey, right? If, if many of you have probably watched Shark Tank, and I'm sure many of the people uh, listening to the podcast are entrepreneurs themselves, uh, when you have to raise capital for a new concept, uh, and we were building the first ever integrated platform service model for high-end REAs, right? And people didn't really understand what it was, uh, people didn't want to make illiquid investments coming out of the financial crisis. Uh, it was a challenge. Uh, and uh, I'm so appreciative of so many friends, you know, like yourself and, and others that came on early. One of the best pieces of advice that, that Marianne, my, my wife, gave me was you need to call, uh, you know, your, your close friends and you need to get the band back together again. Right. You know, the group that has worked with you for so long. Uh, knows, you know, the, the unique approach that you take and, and uh, the effort and how demanding you are and everything else, the good and the bad that goes with it. Uh, and a handful, and some of them were with the old Bates uh, friends that, that I worked with over the years, but we, uh, we jumped in. And when we launched the business, I think a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to this too. Uh, there's this feeling of celebration, but it's short-lived because that's when the real work even uh, starts at that point. So raising the capital was a heavy lift building the initial team, building the initial brand, the business model, et cetera. Uh, and then we said, look, we're open for business. And in the first six months, I think we signed two or three deals. Yep. Uh, it was a really slow build. Uh, but then after probably about two years in, uh, it really started to take off. And I feel like we're, as you well know, we're hitting our stride now. And uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun to be where we are now, but uh, it's been a ton of work in those couple years prior and the nine years since uh, to get to this point. And I don't know, I, I would imagine this is something that happens on a regular basis to any, any entrepreneur, but particularly entrepreneurs who it's their, their first time uh, starting a business is that you've got all these different uh, headwinds and, and voices that come in to your head and to your consciousness, unconsciousness around uh, detractors, people that can't see the vision, people that don't understand what it is that you're doing. And I believe truly that as a CEO, you've done a phenomenal job of not ever 
allowing any of those narratives to come in to your headspace. Maybe you have, and you just haven't expressed it to anyone. But but how do you do that? Like as a CEO of a company, it could be any one of our clients. It could be a tech company, any company where you're starting with a vision or a collective vision of a small group of people and people don't get it. Or even if they do get it, they think that you're going to fail and they say things. How yeah. do you how do you how do you adjust to that? It's, it's a really terrific question. And, and at, at a high level, I've learned over the course of my life that winners surround themselves with other winners. Uh, and you want to surround yourself with people who have positive intent and, and really believe in and support what it is that you want to do. But uh, I'm also a big believer in mentorship, right? And mentorship can come from from anywhere. Uh, and I have a lot of entrepreneurs uh, that I look up, look up to, many of whom that are not even necessarily in our industry. Uh, and I've had the great fortune being able to spend time with them and ask them a lot of questions uh, about their journey. And some of the challenges that you go through are, are not that unique. Kind of, it's the the rite of passage that that a lot of entrepreneurs go through. It's really hard, and frankly, that's the barrier to entry. Uh, I remember seeing this video, uh, an interview with Steve Jobs, uh, a while ago, where he talked about you know any uh, sane and rational person wouldn't do what most entrepreneurs do because right. if you analyze the odds, right, the odds are are far against. Uh, the level uh, of, of success, certainly, that we've had at, at Dynasty when we were starting out. But uh, I was all in uh, and surrounded myself by people uh, who wanted uh, to be all in. I uh, had the hard conversations at home, uh, which I think is really important for entrepreneurs to over-communicate, not just to their partners uh, at the office, but to those at home, to know that it could take a while and it could be really hard and, and uh, it's going to require some sacrifice. But if you do that and you stay committed to it, you believe in yourself, uh, great things can happen. And, and you know, while uh, it's harder than you ever imagined, uh, oftentimes early on, it ends up being more rewarding uh, than you ever could have imagined too. Uh, because all those people who believed in me and believed in what we were doing in the early days, when I mean, I just love seeing the early partners, uh, yourself included, Austin, when he, we start to look at the cap table and we see the the level of wealth that's starting to be created. And by the way, we're uh, we're not done yet. I mean, there's still a lot of opportunity for growth. And you see the difference that you're making in clients' lives and uh, in, in their employees and what they're doing for their end client. Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty incredible. So I think when you have as an entrepreneur a real clear sense of what your purpose is, uh, there's always more work to do. Uh, and it allows you more easily uh, to push through those tough times. Yeah, I think a huge topic uh, for or even a conceptual idea for entrepreneurs and, and something that you've been pretty good about talking about throughout our time together is, is beginning with an end in mind, starting a business, but also uh, being able to understand that you need to implement structures and processes in order to allow that business to scale and grow. And that's incredibly difficult when you have this instantaneous pressure of trying to create positive revenues, um, to get clients, whatever the most basic elements of the business are, you also have to be able to step back as the CEO of a company and say, we may need to do some things today that could slow down the immediate progress of our company, but the long-term viability is dependent on us getting these things right. So 
you know, how have you done that as a CEO? How have you stepped back and say, we need to begin, continue to build with an end in mind or just a, a goal in mind rather than getting myopically focused on the day-to-day elements? Yeah, it's a real challenge. And it's something that uh, I think most entrepreneurs realize uh, that you get better at over time. Uh, when when you're young, and I'm 42 years old, so hopefully in some ways I'm, I'm still young, but when I was younger, uh, I was always kind of a, a, a young executive or young person in a hurry uh, and didn't fully appreciate the value of experience. Uh, and I always thought, no, I can, I can do that. I'm ready for it now. And there's just some things in life that you have to kind of have the battle scars and you have to just go through it uh, and, and learn from mistakes, uh, frankly, even, even, even more than, uh, uh, than, the, than the successes that, that you have. Uh, and uh, as I said earlier, you know, if you surround yourself by people who have complementary skill sets and not everyone that looks and, and thinks exactly like, like you are, you put yourself in a, in a higher probability uh, of, uh, of, of success. But the communication piece is so important to your question, right? So I, I talk about uh, sometimes in, from a business strategy perspective, you have to play more chess than checkers. Well, the challenge with that is even before we launched a business, I could kind of see in my mind where I wanted to be and where the business should be in five years, uh, which is incredibly frustrating that I just wanted to launch the business, <laughs> right? right? I, I knew where we were going to go. I just finished finish raising the capital, get the first teams to, to sign. You know, we're going to be all in and support you. You're going to be safe when you move over on our platform. Uh, but things don't move as fast as, as you want. And now, you know, nine years later after, after we launched and over 40 billion of assets and, you know, we have a, a good business that we're working every day to continue to make it great. Uh, it's the same thing. I see pretty clearly where I want the business to be in five years, but you have to be really careful as a leader right. uh, and as a founder and entrepreneur in a business, because if I walk into every staff meeting and just talk about those things, I'll lose a lot of the team. Right, because uh, they're working on the day-to-day, executing in the short term, uh, and may not interpret or see as clearly uh, as I might, you know, those long-term things. So it's a balance uh, with any leader of an organization not to get too far out in front of the team, uh, and to make sure you pace the communication uh, alongside of the execution, uh, so that you can you can process and and manage the growth uh, at the right pace. But I think that's that point to to hone in on a couple things, there's this tremendous friction point today around the validity and the the value of experience versus the instantaneous accessibility to knowledge through technology, right? So, you know, <clears throat> when when we started in this industry, in order to find certain pieces of information, it could be challenging. Now today with smartphones, there's just so much more access to lots of different types of, of information, lots of types of ways of doing things. And so <clears throat> how do you weigh that with, with different types of employees, right? Ones that may need some mentorship and guidance around experience versus those that believe that instantaneous is better and that there's not a lot of value in experience. How, how do you see that? Maybe no, you're not dealing with yourself, but just as a general principle from your yeah. point of view. 
Well, when it comes to managing people, as you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, right? There's some people uh, that you can communicate with uh, a certain way, and there's other people that if you use that same approach, you lose them. Uh, so you know, you, experience does matter when it comes to communicating and, and managing people. But uh, I actually think about it less as managing and more as leading right. and inspiring. Uh, when I you know, think about the type of leader that, that I aspire to be, uh, it's that someone you know wants to to follow or partner or work with me because they're inspired you know by the vision and what we're doing uh, and they're all in and their why is the same as is aligned with uh, with mine and, and corporate values etc uh, but you know sometimes uh, people need some help right and you have to spend time and have those those uh, th- those honest conversations and sometimes you have to have tough conversations and I would say for me and, and for most people, because most people are good people, uh, but uh, having tough conversations uh, with people is, is not something that most entrepreneurs enjoy. Uh, but the best run businesses, the most successful entrepreneurs uh, that, that I've had a chance to spend time with are the ones that have the discipline to be relentlessly committed to the upgrading of talent over time. So they invest in their talent and they give them every opportunity to, to succeed. But sometimes you realize that the people that get you here may not be the people that get you there. Uh, and you have to make some of those, some of those changes. At, at Dynasty, uh, you know, we evaluate uh, our talent based upon competency in the role. But with equal weighting, uh, we evaluate cultural fit. Right. Uh, and you know, the, the, the easy ones are if they're not doing a good job and they don't fit the culture. Right? You know what the outcome is going to be there. Uh, but the really challenging ones, uh, even more so if someone's not doing as good a job, uh, but they fit the culture, those are the people you want to try to coach up, you want to keep uh, and, and get their performance up uh, because they're a strong cultural player. But the ones that are really challenging are the ones that are star talent and contributors but don't fit the culture. Right. Uh, and those are the ones that, you know, we tell a lot of our clients who are entrepreneurs running RAAs, uh, obviously, that... Uh, being able to have the hard conversations and deal with those issues head on, uh, I think, is one of the differentiators between uh, the businesses that are ex- that are doing exceedingly well and winning on a disproportionate basis versus those that are not dealing with those issues. And I remember you you shared some some very interesting management philosophy. I don't know if it still rings true with you around the way in which you look at individuals, and, and it may seem crude, but I think it's helpful for the conversation, is that within each team, you're going to have natural A, B, and C players. To define that would be an A player is someone that is just naturally good. They're driven. They're self-motivated. They want to do really well. The B players are people who are good employees. They're good or fairly good at their job, but they see it as a job. It's not a career. It's not a passion. It's just something that they do. And then you've got the C players, whether it be culturally or just skill-based, are not the right fit potentially for the team. And as a manager, the objective should be to identify these different pools and then to the best of your ability, give the A players the resources that they need to thrive while not letting them <laughs> get too big of an ego that they disrupt the rest of the team. Right let the B players try to coach the B players up if they if you can maybe to get them to an A minus or A category get more efficiency out of them and then obviously to coach the C players out if there's nothing you can do uh, to get them to a B does that 
does that philosophy still ring true for you or have you changed as you matured and, and, and got some more experience? No, I think it, I think it's probably true. I might, I might describe it, I guess, slightly, slightly different, which is there's going to be different skill sets, obviously, that need to be deployed to do different things within an organization. But I would encourage people to think about, you know, what are the two or three, you know, non-negotiables, right, that have to be aligned amongst everyone. And, I think about our organization, you know, I wake up every day and I think that I have the good fortune to have, you know, had a little bit of success in my life, all because financial advisors who are our clients have entrusted their life's work to me and our team. Yeah. And if you see the world through that lens, when your client, in our case, the financial advisor calls, we can't wait to grab the phone. Or we can't wait to go visit them or call them to spend time with them, to support them, to help them be successful because the more successful they are, the more successful we are. So you need, regardless of experience or role within the organization, a non-negotiable for us uh, is you have to literally love working with financial advisors, right? right? And they're unique uh, people and, uh, and, and professionals. Uh, and if you don't like working with financial advisors, um, you're not going to make it at Dynasty, right? So I would just encourage, uh, you know, every entrepreneur to figure out, uh, you know, again, as you're playing chess, uh, you know, figure out, you know, what are the roles and functions, but what are the unique non-negotiables, the characteristics uh, that uh, you can pull together that will bind the organization? And then from there, um, yeah, you're going to have, Every team, you know, has the the all-star shortstop, uh, and they might have, you know, someone who comes in and pinch runs in a key situation right. who's very valuable to the team coming off the bench, right? So there's different roles that you play uh, on on a winning team, uh, but the, the, the central values, the central goals, the desire uh, to, 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 you know, a dynasty, uh, as, you know, our name implies, means winning consistently over time, right? right. And, and, you know, people who want to sign up for that uh, have to be comfortable, you know, running at that pace. So, you know, we're pretty clear with people up front uh, in terms of what those non-negotiables are. And, and then they come in and, and, and most of the time they perform at that level. If they don't, then there shouldn't be any surprise uh, when we, uh, you know, encourage them to, to find something else to do. Right. And a memory that I have that illustrates this point that you're just talking about it was a Friday night. Uh, you and I were sitting in the office uh, back at City Smith Barney. It was probably 6.30 at night. We were pretty much done for the day. We were sitting there talking to each other about uh, things outside of business and getting ready to, to go home. You were in Weehawken. I lived in, uh, in Brooklyn at the time. And I remember a call came in, and it was from an advisor in Alabama who had an opportunity with a family relative that you could tell based in the tone of his voice that it was the most important opportunity for him. Uh, he was just so excited that he potentially had a chance to, to, to manage some serious assets. And you and I kind of looked at each other, and we're human. We, there was that moment where we looked at each other and we're like, like it's 6.30 on a Friday night. It's probably time to go home for a second. And then uh, we did not, our natural instinct, or maybe the instinct from the perspective of wanting to help someone, a financial advisor, kicked in. And 
we sat there for like an hour or so and went through the opportunity and what this individual should do, um, how we should go about uh, speaking and, and trying to capture the opportunity. I just think back, that was personally very impactful to me. And the way that I looked at it is because that's the difference. When we talk about entrepreneurism, when we talk about what it takes, it's that last call. It's waking up really early. It's staying really late. And, you know, particularly here and something that I've talked about in the past is many people like to hear about that overnight success story. There are tons of people, I think, you know, you were just at Schwab Impact that would say, wow, Dynasty is this fantastic organization and many people want to be a part of it. And they see it like it almost as an overnight success. <laughs> I think we right. can both agree. There's nothing no. overnight about it, right? It's lots of work and lots of effort. No, I, I totally agree with that, Austin. And, and yeah, uh, great story. And, you know, I remember so many nights until I fell asleep uh, in my 20s. I mean, I wasn't a particular, you know, big partier per se, because I was always at home studying. Right. Uh, and my weekends were, were spent with, with reading. I, I learned at a, at, a, at a young age in my career that I wasn't going to be necessarily the best at any one discipline, perhaps in wealth management, but I could be, you know, one of the best at understanding how it all fit together. Right. Right. And that was the early movement of wealth management uh, where, you know, I tried to, to be conversationally competent in all aspects of wealth management and had the great, you know, fortune of growing up inside of an organization that Sandy Weil had built at, at City, which was a great place to learn the business. And it was, you know, the largest uh, finance firm in the world for quite some time. Uh, and people were great. You know, I would be the young guy showing up, asking all the questions, and they would answer them and found it intriguing that I had, you know, so many questions and were so prepared for the meeting uh, and would just do it over and over again. But then probably the most important thing uh, you know, about my time there is I spent a lot of time in the field with advisors, uh, learning about what made them great, where their frustrations were, uh, learning about how I could be helpful, uh, but did thousands of end client meetings. And I know right. you've done a lot of that too, because ultimately that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Seeing what's important uh, to the end client, uh, what's important to the client advisor uh, relationship, and then understanding how we can how we can add value and I still get out as I know you do and spend a, a lot of time uh, with uh, the advisors and 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 their end client and I think it's you know as you think about you know kind of keeping the the skill set sharp uh, it's easy you know as you have more success kind of in a corporate career uh, to get further removed from the from the client relationship uh, and that's dangerous I think you you, you want to you want to make sure that you're not isolated and that you stay close uh, to where the real value prop happens. And that's at, you know, the point of service with, with the end client. And I think that's something that, uh, that we've done, uh, you know, you and I, but also our organization. I think about the, you know, 75 people or so that we have at the, at the company. Uh, you know, I would say probably two-thirds of them uh, have a fair amount of end client experience and all of them have experience working with advisors. And I just think that's critical to who we are as an organization. I agree. So <clears throat> switching gears for a second, we're at a, a, um, a new spot. Obviously we've had some success. We've made it past the kind of death knoll of three years where most startup companies fail or they don't make it or they, uh, transition to something else. So 
we've got a relatively, I think, good reputation within the marketplace and we're growing. Like the company has changed from seven or eight of us sitting in a room back to back um, to, you know, multiple locations in different cities across the United States. So as the CEO of Dynasty and, and thinking about wisdom that you would impart to other CEOs of businesses, our clients, or candidly, anyone that's an entrepreneur, I mean, what do you have to think about as a business is growing? How do you maintain the culture, which is very different from a startup to a mature company? Um, and how do you make sure that people stay connected? Yeah. You know, so, so to talk about our growth, what I, what I like about it in terms of the foundation uh, is that it's based in true organic growth. And we're growing at a very, very large clip right now organically. Uh, and probably few firms in certainly in our space, but in the wealth industry are growing faster than we are organically. We're, you know, out there and you know, closing kind of deals, if you will, one one at a time. And we haven't done a lot of M&A in large part. Uh, we've been in a lot of processes, uh, but we've been very disciplined uh, with our capital uh, not to chase some of the frothy valuations that, that are out there. Uh, and I think, you know, you'll see us to be more uh, in, uh, active, you know, as some of these uh, asset prices come back down to, to earth a little bit more. But to have the, 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 the fundamental growth engine of an organization uh, be one that's focused on organic growth, uh, both from the standpoint of us uh, adding kind of new store sales uh, and new advisors to our platform, but also helping to power organic growth for our clients, right? So that's a very powerful combination where we're adding a handful of, of new clients uh, each year, uh, which have gotten a lot bigger uh, than when we first started the business. Our, our average advisor size when we started nine years ago was probably you know, just sub 300 million, and now it's north to 800 million. Right. Uh, so that, that's been great. Uh, but then the, the firms have grown themselves. So that, that, that combination is, uh, has, has been powerful. But uh, as with anyone who's listening to this who's had uh, explosive growth for an extended period of time, right. there are some challenges that come with it, right? Because uh, you can burn your people out uh, if you're not careful. And there's certainly been instances where we've done that uh, at, at Dynasty. Uh, there's been times when uh, as you well know yourself, uh, you know, the, the service team or transition team, you know, maybe hasn't been home to see their family at months at a time because there's just been so much to do. And that can be uh, taxing on people and in an organization. And then, of course, you have to balance the growth and all the new clients and expectations with all of your legacy clients. Right. And legacy clients are, are so valuable uh, for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but they believed in us when, like right. when it was, you know, a lot more challenging. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's been a process. Uh, we certainly haven't gotten it uh, perfect, uh, but I think we're getting better at, at scaling the, 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 the business over time. And you have to really uh, hire uh, to that mindset too, Austin, where, you know, we'll tell people up front that, look, you're going to come in and in six months, your role might change. Right. Right. And in 18 months, you might be running a whole new division that we've launched. Right. Because we're, you know, we're growing the business fast. We're expanding services uh, to, uh, to to our advisors. So it's it's very it's very dynamic. 
Uh, and it takes a, a special entrepreneurial uh, mindset, I think, to be successful in, in that type of structure. Yeah, there was um, there was a video, I think it was put out by Sequoia, where they're interviewing a CEO of one of their portfolio companies. I wish I remember the name of the guy that, that had this quote because I use it a lot, so I'll find it. But he said that a startup, <clears throat> for a startup every day is a tragedy. It's just a matter of whether or not that tragedy actually ends the business or it's something that needs to be overcome. And when I think about Dynasty, for the most part, and we do have some clients that have been uh, independent for a while that have joined our platform, I think we're, we're definitely trending more towards those clients as we've matured and obviously learned more about the space. But for the most part, we have been for a long time a startup company that has been working with other startups, which is at times incredibly challenging. And so, but I think that's a competitive advantage. Yeah, that we are entrepreneurs sure. servicing other entrepreneurs, right? There's that philosophical alignment. I, you mentioned the, the Schwab impact, uh, that I had an opportunity to actually the great fortune and the honor of, of kicking it off. Right. Uh, last, the uh, last week out in San Diego and, Spent a little bit of time in the in the green room with uh, with with Chuck uh, Schwab and Walt Bettinger, who's the CEO, as you know, of Schwab now. And uh, on the way out, I actually read uh, Chuck's new book, Invested, which, uh, as a as an entrepreneur, uh, it's 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 definitely a book I would recommend. It's a nice history lesson uh, of how he built Schwab, but also uh, some of the thought process that he was going through at the time and how he made various decisions. But Specific to this topic, what he said was when it came time for him to pick a uh, successor, uh, he ended up picking Walt uh, in large part because Walt had started as an entrepreneur himself. Right. Even though, you know, at the time, I don't know the exact market cap, but uh, it, I'm sure it was probably north of, of $10 billion or so, and now it's close to 50 uh, But uh, he had acquired, it was an acquire hire yeah. uh, of Walt when he had bought his business. Uh, and he said, because he understood all the ups and downs and emotions, uh, and I wanted to go back to basics, back to that entrepreneurial, you know, startup, you know, early day, only the paranoid survive, all in mentality uh, that Walt embodied because he'd lived it himself. Right. Uh, uh, it was fascinating to, to hear him talk about, you know, that decision making process. And now where we sit, you know, today with 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 Dynasty uh, not that I'm in a hurry to think about my succession plan, but what I do think about and what I just shared uh, with all of our team members uh, at our at our offsite uh, in St. Petersburg a few weeks ago is what's exciting to me is, you know, Dynasty's made it to a certain level of success, uh, but how big it, or how successful it becomes is no longer up to me. Right. Right. It's up to the to the, all these new team members uh, that are going to embrace it and want to run with it. Uh, and make it their own and take it to a complete different level in ways that I never would have imagined. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun and, and fascinating to to see what you all do with it. Yeah. And I think it comes back to, again, things that are easy to say, you know, the headlines, the, the quotes from Steve Jobs. It's easy to say, you know, be paranoid or only the paranoid survive. It's easy to say, you have to outwork all of your competitors. It's like anything else. Like if, if, if you want to lose weight and you're going to be on a diet, well, then you actually have to do the things that the diet right. states. And, and that's the, 
for me, that's one of the interesting things, both from looking at our company, but also in working with advisors who are moving beyond just being of an advisor. They're becoming entrepreneurs and being an entrepreneur, while there are many complementary skill sets and the foundation of the business, clients that are generating revenue are similar, it's it's a whole new ballgame for a lot of them because now you're looking at a P&L. Now you're trying to institute and continue to build a culture. Now you're looking at a strategic view for a company. And so I just think it's interesting that as individuals go through the life cycle of transitioning, starting, and growing a business, that there always has to be that, that small element of day one mentality, right? And not just the mentality of it, but actually doing the work. Like that's yeah. the big thing for me. It's like not saying, oh, I'm going to make sure that, that I'm outworking everyone. It's like actually getting up at five and staying till six day after day and yeah. not looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, look, I'm the CEO of a company. We're very successful. We've got a good reputation. You know what? I'm going to take it easy. I, I totally agree with that, and I think it gets back to when you find, you know, what it is you're passionate about, you understand your purpose uh, and why, you know, you're doing what it is that you're doing, it makes that easier to do. I mean, look, there at the end of the day, we're all human, and there there are, you know, some days where, uh, you know, harder than, than others, but the vast majority, uh, I feel like tomorrow is going to be the best day of my life, right? right? I mean, it's like... I can't wait, you know, to to go take on the next challenge and opportunity. But when I, you know, before I started the company, you know, I was working on trying to start the company. And, you know, I get up and get going typically about 7 o'clock uh, in the morning, start working. Uh, and then I literally don't stop until I go to bed. Right. And I'm not saying that's wrong or right. I mean, there's certainly people who want to talk about balance and, and, and there's no balance with that. Uh, but it's a decision uh, that's been a mutual decision, uh, and my my wife and and I have two daughters, uh, eleven and thirteen, and we have these conversations together as a family to make sure it's working for all of us. Uh, but you know, dad uh, and husband, right, goes away uh, all week essentially, uh, and that allows me and and they you know live in a different different place typically from where our corporate offices are, either in New York or in, in St. Petersburg, Florida. And that allows me, you know, to wake up in the morning, run hard all day. Uh, but when I go home on the weekends, I'm incredibly present. Right. Right. So I'm not on my phone nonstop in front of my kids. You know, I don't uh, I just the way I'm, I'm programmed, I, I sleep about six hours a night. Uh, so uh, usually there's a little bit of time to, to check on emergency issues late at night or first thing in the morning. Uh, but for the most part, I shut it down on the weekend. But uh, pulling in at that level, that level of effort. Uh, as I said to you know earlier, I just think it's it's part of the buried entry, right? Because most people are not going to do what's required. I mean, I still make from an income standpoint significantly less than what I made in when I was in my twenties uh, when I had the you know good fortune of being a senior executive at at right. City. Uh, so you know, this is a passion play. This is a love of entrepreneurship and the people I get to work with and our clients. Uh, ultimately, uh, you know, taking the long-term view, I'll do just fine uh, on the on the equity side. Uh, but I believe in leading from the front, right, and asking, uh, you know, yourself to, to to do first what it is that you're asking your team to do. And and I try to do that by, you know, riding for the brand, being all in uh, for the long-term financial success of the business for our clients, uh, and that requires maximum effort. And 
I can't see myself just slowing it down. I think at some point uh, when there's someone better suited to take the business to the next level, uh, then then we'll approach that then. Uh, but until then, I'm just going to keep running the way I'm running and having too much fun not to. Right. And within within those comments, you brought up the the concept of equity, which I think is incredibly important to discussions in our segment of the independent space, but just overall, because <clears throat> I believe that the general public has a very, I guess, peripheral understanding of how valuable equity can be, what it means to be an equity owner of a company, and then when evaluating positions, jobs, careers, et cetera, the difference between being paid a salary and being a salaried employee versus being a meaningful equity owner in a company. And you have done a phenomenal job with all of the employees of Dynasty of making them be equity owners. Most people, including myself, wrote a check to join Dynasty uh, based on the belief that I had in the business. But everyone from you know the the top executives down to people that are that are in true service roles receptionists etc have some sort of equity so talk a little bit about that talk about it within the the lens or the framework of dynasty but then also you know for our clients as they talk right. to people particularly in the bringing people on how valuable the equity in their RAs can be well the first thing i would say is when you think about you know, for the vast majority of people who've had uh, the, the the great fortune, you know, to, to build significant wealth, they've done it through equity, right? There's a handful of exceptions, right? Whether you're uh, an elite uh, professional athlete or musician or have a unique talent, et cetera, uh, you know, or a handful of, of top-level uh, corporate executives. But for most people, they're entrepreneurs. They took a calculated risk. They bet on themselves. They had a passion. Uh, they understood an issue or problem they wanted to solve for, and they went for it. Uh, and they didn't do it necessarily to get some huge payoff at the end, uh, but you know they executed, it worked, uh, and all of a sudden their business is, is worth a fair amount of money. So uh, I, I uh, about you know a dozen years ago, uh, when I was working back at, at Smith Barney, the larger organization, I just came to a realization I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to, to, to do an equity play. Uh, and then once kind of it became clear that there was an opportunity to provide platform services to REAs, and that was my way to keep working with advisors and being an entrepreneur, uh, off, off we went. But you know, as most entrepreneurs know, the way that you surround yourself by elite talent, which is how you're going to win faster and scale faster, uh, is you're going to have to pay people with, with equity. Uh, and we have a number of clients uh, that, that are still evaluating you know, how they do that. Uh, and there's definitely uh, right and wrong ways to do it. Uh, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, myself included, you know, can make mistakes by not over-communicating what the equity is all about. Uh, when you do it well, I mean, there, there are so many examples. I love when, you know, the, the, the legacy uh, team members at Dynasty will yell at the new person because they're printing in color for an internal meeting, <laughs> right. right? Not black and white because they say color is eight cents a page and black and white is, is one cent. And that's our money. Right. Because like you said, when you, when you stroke a check or you have equity of skin in the game, uh, it's very real to you. Uh, and in some of our uh, capital rounds over the years, we've allowed 
uh, team members uh, to sell, you know, a small piece. And that really makes real the currency of, of the equity. But um, you can't expect people to understand that value uh, through osmosis, sure. right? You have to have that conversation uh, so they understand the, the value uh, potential and and how it's part of the overall compensation equation. I've I've seen scenarios, uh, you know, with friends who are entrepreneurs and sometimes in our business too, where people might have even a decent slug of equity and they don't fully appreciate it. They still feel like they're being significantly undercompensated. Uh, whereas if you said to them, here's the value of your equity divided by the number of years service and here's what you get paid, it's actually significantly more than maybe what you would have made elsewhere. Right. Uh, and they say, oh, well, I hadn't thought about it that way. Well, that's on me. That's on the leader of the organization uh, that didn't uh, provide that type of education up front uh, that would have prevented some of that mindset. So uh, it's, uh, you know, when, when done right, uh, it is an incredible motivator, and it's an incredible way uh, to align uh, central values and goals of, of, of the organization. Uh, but like I said earlier, uh, it's something that you have to sit down and be thoughtful about, not just run into, uh, because if you do it wrong, uh, it can be counterproductive uh, and very dilutive uh, you know, to the leader of the organization because you want to make sure that you get those rewards uh, in the trade-off for, for granting of the equity. Right. And I think the point that you made around compensation and combining your your take-home income with equity is an incredibly important topic. And the reason why I, I think that is that a lot of, t- and this may, this is a fairly, it's not a controversial point of view, but it's a contrarian point of view. Most studies that you read about employee satisfaction will place compensation third or fourth at the list, right? They'll, they'll talk about things like uh, feeling safe and culture and trust and mm-hmm. responsibilities, et cetera. And all those things are incredibly important. I just believe that a lot of time the reason why compensation ends up lower on the list is because of respondent biases. There, someone answering that survey doesn't want to appear like money is the most important thing to them. But the reality is, at least in our society today and probably globally, money is super important for people. It's a huge driver of behavior. And so to help people understand that their compensation is made up of a couple components, particularly if they're part of an equity, a company that grants equity or that vests equity over time, that's critical. Like you have to have a way in which you can explain that. I see it all the time in terms of the way that people are talking about sharing their equity or having their equity be part of a deal with someone joining. Like that currency is so important and yet at times it's almost a downplay like you know here's the equity component and yeah. here's your payout component right because people in our industry are trained oh i want a 65% payout i want a 50 they want more payout in a in a lump sum and they're very short sighted versus someone that can actually do what you're talking about which is take a quantitative analysis of what the payout will be as part of yeah. a deal structure and make the right decision. Yeah, it's it's such a good point. I, mean, I was just reading the, the fascinating study around M&A uh, in the RIA space. Right. And what's interesting you look at the data, right? Cuz everyone kind of has these intuitive thoughts about, you know, where valuations are and and what success looks like, et cetera. But it's always it's always fun to look at the actual numbers and look at the data. Uh, and what you're finding is deals, when you look at success over a longer period of time, 
deals that were entered in by someone who was just trying to maximize value, right, at all costs, just just get me the, the, the highest price versus someone that said, okay, valuation is, to your point, one variable. Right. While important, there's other things like cultural fit, quality of the platform, uh, you know, uh, do I do I do I fit the culture in a way that's going to help me grow? Is there a mechanism in place, you know, to help with brand development? You know, is the team professionally run? Do I believe that it's going to have sustained organic and inorganic growth over time? All of those things, so that uh, I might transact where I might take fifty percent in cash and fifty percent in equity right. in the new venture, but I end up, you know, being long term greedy in that. Uh, because that organization that I've now joined has the benefit of scale, uh, and we're able to continue to grow together. So that ultimately, maybe there's that second bite of the apple that happens down the road, and I sell my equity. When I look at what I would have had by maximizing, you know, at point A, versus selling a little bit uh, early on and then selling, you know, the rest of it at a higher valuation down the road, I'm better off. My employees were better off. My clients were better off. Uh, you know, if more people. Uh, kind of took that perspective at looking at, uh, you know, alignment, sure. uh, you know, around uh, how they choose to work, whether it's sell their business to or join an organization and align it through equity. Uh, it's incredibly powerful, again, when when done right. Yeah. I think part of the issue, and it's it's not a global issue, but it's definitely an issue within the independent space, particularly for advisors that are leaving a traditional financial institution and starting their own is that <clears throat> conceptually things like the net present value of a decision oftentimes isn't even brought into the equation. So not to get geeky, but when you hire a person, what does that do to your P&L and how does that impact on your immediate P&L impact your longer term enterprise value of the company? How do you make decisions? Is it is it a knee jerk reaction you feel or there's there's commentary from your support team that they don't have enough help. So then you go out and hire another person. Or is there a very analytic way by which individuals are acting as true entrepreneurs and making decisions based on financial information versus knee jerk? And I think and you talk a lot about this the advisor to CEO transition is incredibly important. Like, how do you do that? Because it is a mindset change. It's not just I've got, you know, 50 households and they're generating X amount of revenue. As long as I keep them happy, right. the business is better because I have I have better margins. It's got to be something different. So how do you how do you do that? Like, what do you what do you say to people to get them thinking about what they do as a business and transitioning from that advisor to a CEO? Yeah, it's it's a process. Absolutely, I mean, it's not something that happens overnight. I mean, it starts with with understanding the language of business, right? So, understanding right. Uh, how to read a balance sheet, which you know some advisors you know do from a analytic investment perspective. Uh, but when you look at you know the the, the P and L of an RAA, it's not overly complicated once you spend the time to really dig in. But you need to think about and know what are my fixed costs, what are my variable costs, what's my total cost structure that gets me to my gross income? What's advisor comp going to be if I have multiple advisors at my firm? Uh, and then and after I subtract advisor comp out, what's my what's my net income? And right. how do I grow it over time? And what are the, the levers that I can pull that will increase the multiple that I could get uh, on, on that business over time? So 
the people who are building and running the best businesses that we see are the ones that really enjoy that. Right. Uh, and it's okay if you don't, and you may want to uh, hire a, a COO or someone within the business to help do more of the day-to-day, you know, the business operations. Uh, but I think, you know, if you look at some of these large-scaled brands that are evolving, many of them are run by what I would say are former advisors sure. that have evolved to now being CEOs of wealth advisory businesses, right? So they went from having a practice uh, to now, you know, running an organization, in some cases, have multiple offices in multiple cities. And I think you're going to see many national REAs down the road. And, you know, Dynasty is that kind of Intel sticker, if you will, that's powering a lot of those devices. And, you know, we have uh, aggressive uh, ambition to power, you know, some of the big uh, scaled advisory businesses. Uh, so when we're evaluating a new partner in a new market, one of the biggest things that we look at is quality of leadership. Right. Uh, and how committed are they to their own professional development? How committed are they uh, to evolving, uh, you know, to the professionalization of the business, to being, uh, you know, a little bit more of that CEO uh, where we're providing supported independence to them, but they're excited about thinking through uh, enterprise value creation and, uh, similar to a lot of their clients who are entrepreneurs, right? There's that alignment in philosophy. They're servicing entrepreneurs. Well, now let's bring that into our own business uh, and think about what's my five-year brand architecture and how's it going to evolve? How do I build an economic model to the to the point that I think you made well, uh, which is not just a business plan, but where do I want my business to be at $5 million, $10 million, $20 million in revenue? What should the margins be? When should I add other services or people? Tying that, you know, to the to the economic model, I think, is a really uh, good tool. Uh, it's not something that you have to necessarily follow exactly, but as an entrepreneur, to be able to go back and refer to to help you reflect on various investments and decisions that you might want to make in the business, uh, I found it to be very helpful. Last question, one minute or less. <laughs> can you do that? Yeah, I'm sure I can. <laughs> For someone coming into wealth management, financial services, whatever vernacular you want to use to, to kind of categorize what it is that we do, what would you say to them? Well, the first thing I would say to, to new people, but also people who maybe want to change careers and come in, is please do it. Uh, because as an industry, we need more high-integrity, high-quality people uh, at a time in this country where financial wellness, I think, is a real concern. Uh, for individuals, for pensions, endowments, states, federal uh, government, uh, we need to get financially healthier uh, as a, as as an entire country. Uh, and I think having independent advice delivered by you know quality advisors, separate from where products are manufactured and sold, at least gives those entities uh, a good starting point uh, to be able to get great advice. So please, I hope that more people get encouraged, and we as an industry have to bring more people in. For new people, uh, I think it's fairly simple. Uh, there's no substitute for hard work. Uh, you have to put the, the time in uh, and uh, invest in your competency, your own professional development, read, uh, and ultimately the second point is find great mentors. Uh, I tell young people uh, starting out, it's more valuable than what you make uh, is that you uh, work for or with people who care about your development. They're going to give you interesting things. They're going to challenge you push you, allow you to fail, uh, and ultimately grow fast. That's 
in the first, you know, three to five years of your career, uh, being in that type of environment, you should trade that all day long uh, versus, you know, an extra couple thousand dollars to work somewhere where you don't have that type of support. Awesome. Had a really good time. Thanks for uh, thank yeah. you for being on. It was, so, it was a lot of fun. Always fun to spend time with you, Austin. Sure. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our Powering Independence podcast and the conversation with Cheryl Penny, uh, CEO of Dynasty Financial Partners. I would also like to personally thank Cheryl for being in the studio with me and taking some time out of his busy schedule. And as a reminder to listeners, uh, this will be coming out on a regular basis, so stay tuned for our next episode.